Welcome to the Corey Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict, peace, theology, and art. My name is Padraigo Tuma, and you're listening to the Corey Mila podcast. With me today is Duncan Morrow. Duncan is a professor in politics and director of community engagement at Ulster University, and his academic interests include conflict and ethics and religion. He was chief executive of the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council, and he chaired the Scottish government's advisory group on tackling sectarianism, and he's a long-term Corrie Miele member. Duncan, you're very welcome to the Corrie Miele podcast. Thanks, Patrick. Nice to be here. Um, Duncan, today in conversation with you, we're going to be looking really at some philosophies and ideas behind, you know, the imagination of sectarianism and conflict in human relationship. But I'm going to make sure that we stay grounded in stories. Um, and I'd like to start with one. Um, was there any part of your childhood that you feel prepared you for some of the work you do now or any experience in childhood? Well, you know, at some level, all of it, um, of course, like anybody else. Um, I grew up um, through Corrymeela, I wouldn't say in Corrymeela, but through it, my parents were extremely involved in it, um, but also uh, being in the family I was in, we were always slightly strange. We moved a lot, so we were always different in different places and differently different in different places, funny enough. You know, Irish in Scotland, Scotland in the south of Ireland, Southern Irish when we came north again. And so there was this kind of distinctiveness also being from the background I came from, I suppose, clerical families are already distinguished at some level or other in, in, in communities because there's something about being a cleric, even particularly in those days, which is markedly blowed. Your father was a minister, pre- Presbyterian? Yeah, my father was a Presbyterian minister and, and, and he moved, his job moved him around and he had moved within his own, even his own profession to being in a slightly unusual position in that he was not a member of a congregation after a while. He was part of chaplaincy in Queens and then part of uh, Coronamilla. So, yeah, we were in odd spaces and we were moving spaces. Um, and at the same time, I suppose the continuous thread was between family and um, the issue of Coronamilla, I suppose. And so that did prepare me then, I think, a lot for the job yeah. that I've done since then. Oh, interesting. And your mother's Scottish? Yes, my mother's Scottish. Um, and I certainly think she had a, a, a sense of being different. I, I mean, she died when I was uh, 40, so I never fully had these conversations with her. But I think she probably felt that uh, for her, Ireland was a bit of an escape from a fairly restrictive background. Mm. And so I think she had a sense of being, if not on her own, at least being uh, very much uh, different and distinctive and then distinctive again in Ireland. My father came from a very large extended family and, uh, you know, she was very much a different kind of a person at that stage. She'd had a university degree at a time when women didn't, but also a lot of people didn't really. Mm. And I think uh, all of those things added up to her sense of distinctiveness. I'd love to start off in talking with you, you know, you you do uh, political work, political theory um, through sociology, but so often with you, um, words like identity and relationship are at the core of your political analysis. And I wonder if we could start off talking about relationship. You wrote once, people still think that relationship work is soft work when it comes to conflict and peace work. 
Would you say a little bit more about that idea about relationship and why it is that perhaps you're saying it's not the soft work? Yeah, we um, used to have this little phrase we used all the time saying that they, the, the distinction people draw is between hard and soft. I once went to a meeting um, where a senior civil servant in Northern Ireland uh, was asked about community relations and he said, oh yes, that's the cucumber sandwiches of policy. And if you're called cucumber sandwiches and if you're called soft, then to be honest with you, you're on the slope to of the way out. You know, this is not important. It's the kind of outwork. And I remember thinking at the time, um, they distinguish politicians and political people make the things distinction between what they can measure and which they can hold on to or which is objects and deliverables and numbers. And they call that hard. And then all the other things which they can't control, such as how people react with each other, how people use those things, how people are in the middle of those things they're delivering are soft. And I remember thinking, no, it's not hard and soft. It's hard and harder. Mm-hmm. And they're harder, not in the sense of being, you know, uh, robust or, or in, in, you know, non-movable. They are harder in the sense that they you don't control them. You have to work within them. They're constantly moving around you. And in my sense, always was that that's actually where change happens in people's relationships. And that's what changes people is the relationships they're, they're in. And do you think like, you know, your academic work is in sociology and you, you lecture in politics and maybe political theory. Do you think you have a lot of companionship in having that um, emphasis on relationships as an academic as well? Or do you think it's the kind of activist side of you that, that really brings in the interest in relationships or maybe all of them? Well, I, th- I think there's two sides to that. I think, you know, good sociology is interested in social relationships. Good politics is interested in political relationships. So anybody who does these things also knows, you know, a politician knows that they have to position themselves in relationship to both their voters, but also their parties and to their opponents and all of these things. And that's that's part of it. So they do understand that. I think the way in which I believe that human relationship actually transcends politics and sociology comes from my experience in Northern Ireland, but also increasingly from my theoretical understanding that politics isn't the end all. Politics is a way of describing power relationships. Um, But we have to have, we either have a horizon which says there are other relationships or there is at least other relationships outside of power in which people have a sense of their own being and their own importance and their own value, um, which doesn't simply come from your place in politics or sociology, that um, that then defines, I think, the way I think. And I think that did definitely come both from my experience in in Coramilla in Northern Ireland, but also um, probably it's a faith statement as well at some point, is, is that there is another reality against which even politics has to be measured. Mm. And we're going to talk about faith and theology in a bit. So, you know, you're talking about relationships and that um, politics is a way of describing relationships and looking at relationships and power. How would you bring us into the way it is that you um, weigh the concept of identity when it comes to your work? Well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the word identity in English is that it clearly has the same root as the word identical. And so identity is a way of describing myself in relation to something else. I'm always using externals to describe something 
about me. Mm. And I, I think um, that is a very foundational fact, which is that although a lot of our life is, of course, internal and belongs to us, it is also rooted in the things that are happening to us and that the situations that we're in. And so it's not a fixed reality. And so my sense of identity always involves another or others, or it, 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 is, it is itself located in something which is outside myself. And has that been, have you had experiences of difficulty of that in your life, Duncan? I mean, we'll be talking about this as a political analysis in a while, but I'm curious, have there been times when for you, the identicals of your life have been challenged or you've moved away from them or somebody? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to whether you could locate this in your own life. There's a strange, but there's two, two ways to answer that. One, of course, is that it's never finally fixed. You meet another situation, you meet other realities. So you asked about experiences, I suppose, you know, really big events in your life, like getting married or new friendships or going to new places or, you know, actually meeting somebody who, who, who radically, if not upends, at least alters the way you look at the world. And I think that's, 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 that's almost my expectation now mm. that I will meet people and I won't know. So my identity is at that level, always changing. Mm. And then there's another part of it, which is, I'm always, and now because I'm so, it's so deep in me that really, that, that, that who you are depends on who you identify with. Um, that my question to myself all the time is who, who ultimately am I? Who do I identify with? Who do I find some sense of purpose and continuity and meaning in? Or what do I find uh, continuity and meaning in? So that, the, the two sides of that, it's a mobile thing and it's always going, but it's a constant question which you have to go back to. Yeah. I know you have worked um, on a on a huge level with questions to do with with victims and survivors of sectarian murder and state sponsored murder too, and you have had enormous engagements. And so, questions to do with identity when identities have been systematically denied and targeted, and people have been murdered because of identity. Um, could you bring us into that? Because it, yeah, it seems to me that identity, when identity has been the subject of particular long-term generational cyclical um, mistreatment and denial. It, it seems to me that identity then becomes something different um, than just questions to do with identical. There, there's another important level to it there too. How do you measure it then? Well, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think, um, and I, I suppose the modern way of describing that is trauma, is that there are these traumas, some of which are personal, some of which are um, events in whole communities, so that the entire community is marked by that trauma, something there to do with characteristics which are, are picked on. Um, and and those things then become almost more important. They certainly can't be got away from and that, that whole operation of the way trauma operates, where it's in the past, but it's not in the past. Mm. It's constantly with you. Yeah. And I think sometimes that can be, of course, a, a, a source of, of strength um, for people and a source of community. Um, and sometimes um, it's a terrible wound, really. Maybe sometimes it's both. Maybe it's both. It's a yeah. source of community in the wound. Um, what what it would mean, um, whether, whether 
you know, that is still our final identity is in the trauma, I think is, is, is a complicated question for people. I, I certainly don't think you can say to people who've been through terrible events, you know, you have to let that go. I think there is a sense in which though, you might want to ask, do you want to let that go? Certainly as trauma, um, do you want to let that go? Just can that, can that now be? But I think you're right. I mean, we live in a society uh, here where those experiences have uh, shaped people's sense of what the world is like and shaped their identity in it, that that is both what they're defending and how they react in circumstances. It's, 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 it's alive. It's, it's a very live thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and actually, the more people try to take it off them, the more they defend it. So yeah. that's the other side of it. Mm. So like in, in talking about relationships and identity, and obviously we particularly are speaking about the British Irish circumstances that occur in Northern Ireland, you know, rather than thinking this is the, this is the lens through which all of the questions of conflict and partition, et cetera, in the world can be looked at. But in the context of identity and relationships in the North of Ireland between British identifying and Irish identifying people, Protestant or Catholic, Unionist or Nationalist, Loyalist, Republican, all these terms that can be used really to divide, divine the um, the camps of whether your primary identification is, is with Britishness or your primary identification of Irishness. Um, identity and relationship often seem to serve to keep people apart rather than together. Um, uh, how do you work with that within the context of your imagination about what peace can be? Right. Because I think everything's relationships, everything. I don't think there is life outside of it. I don't think people, I and I don't feel in my own life, I, I could live outside of the, if you like, the ecosystem I live in, which is, is, is what makes me unique. Um, and it's a changing one and it's an organic one, but I don't, I, I think that the question of relationship is different from the question of what relationship in other words relationship with trauma and relationship through trauma and through mutual trauma and through mutual threat which is very deeply built into the society often means that actually people's sense of identity is giving a name to what they're not in other words, that the, the relationship is actually incredibly present for them. They're not British, they're not Irish, they're not this thing. And the thing that they're not is whatever this threat is, or which, and that threat is grounded in some sense, usually a sense of story. There's nearly always a story behind it, either a story of me or a story of us. Mm. Um, and that is, so those stories both tell and retell and reshape and then encompass and the next event and the next trauma and they they kind of give you a lens and a, and a, a way to look at things so it becomes yeah. like some kind of critical pathway i suppose to examine that story then or to look at other points of view can sometimes feel like a threat understandably because sometimes it is i mean um there's, you mentioned earlier on about the past, a phrase we hear often enough in government statements about what's happening in Northern Ireland is, you know, a divided past and a shared future. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Do you think that's possible? Um, and do we have a divided past? I mean, do you, how do you bring yourself into those? We, well, many of us, I suppose, the, the dominant stories of, of, of this place have been interconnected with each other. So you can't tell the story of Irishness in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland without telling the story of Britishness 
yeah. particular story. And you can't tell a story of Britishness without telling a story of Irishness. So they're they're interconnected at that level. Um, on the other hand, we have tended to tell almost what makes Northern Ireland so interesting in its binary nature and, uh, and, and makes this process of relationships so clear is that they're the same story, but they're told from the exact opposite side of the lens. Mm. It's like the story through the looking glass. So the mm. story that people tell of Britishness is almost the opposite. Depending where they come from, you can tell who they are by their story. Mm. So we have, in a sense, a, a, a common past, but a very divided version of it. Mm. My own view is that unless there is something intervening, some other new event, something which makes us meet each other in a different way, then the power of those patterns is to repeat themselves. They repeat themselves until something else comes in the way, in which is no longer true. It can no, we can no, and and the question then is, so how and when and in what way are these stories of which have become very bitter and have created all sorts of justification up to and including killing? Um, how do they get interrupted? What interrupts that? And that's the big question. My name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Cara Mela podcast. With me today is Professor of Politics, Duncan Morrow. Duncan, we're talking about identity and we're talking about pain and trauma and colonization and partition, huge things that kind of stretch back centuries and also are very present in terms of the everyday of British Irish politics, particularly as it relates to the north of Ireland. And um, one of the big questions about identity is... Um, who who was hurt the most? And when there's conflict about victim, where one person or one grouping of people will say, here is why our actions or political point of view or our narrative um, should be given particular place because of this experience. And another group will say, well, no, actually, we're on the exact opposite side of the coin. So, so when there's, I mean, Claire Mitchell says that it's conflict about what the conflict's about. How how do you go about in any way having actions that can be gathering of a community for something like a shared future when you're, um, when the most basic understanding of A, what country are we in and B, who's suffered? How do you, how do you go about that? And who's the perpetrator to use really violent, crude terms? How do you go about um, doing any positive piecework when even those most basic understandings seem to not be shared? Well, I mean, first of all, I think the answer most people give to who is the greatest victim or where is the greatest pain, as you put it, is quite close to me or mine. And because that's what looms large, we, we see things through perspective. And while we can acknowledge other people's pain, the pain that's actually infringing on us, the size and sheer mass of that is, is our own. So that's the risk is that the ultimately, if we're feeling part of this relationship, the pain we prioritize is our own over others. Mm -hmm. And that um, the, par the paradoxical outcome of that here is that the justification for me causing pain to you is as a way to get rid of my pain. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of way in which who's perpetrator and who's victim. Yes, we can trace this back and you can make a history of it, but it gets interrupted by the fact that it's human beings making the choice. It's the bit that matters. And second of all, who's a perpetrator and who's a victim? Certainly, if you tell a community story or a state story or an anti-state story or whatever story you want to tell, um, 
is a, almost a punctuation question. It's a question of where you're starting from, where you start in a long chain. And and what we know is that people start from uh, that long chain and they start from themselves and that they, 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 they discount the bits that kind of counteract that. So that eventually, um, at least in the present, in the present, it's impossible almost to tell who's the perpetrator and who's the victim. Um, because they've become really similar. Now, you may then tell a narrative which gives you a really strong story hundreds of years ago as to why that's true. Um, but ultimately, the value of that depends on, on, on the quality of the narrative. And also this competition for pain eventually depends on there being a third party who can judge and who can you can bring onto your side to, to try to change the story. Mm. Um, if you don't have that possibility then, you know, it's just he said, she said, or she said, he said, or whatever, the, you know. So that is the the difficulty. You said, how do you, how do you start in that situation? I think, uh, I don't, I, I think it's almost like, uh, you know, we have to bring it to a halt. You have to bring it to a stumbling stone. You have to, you have to bring it to the point where our ownership of what is happening is not just theirs. It's also partly ours or... If we that what we are doing, we also see, or what they have suffered, we also recognise as something which we've been through. So the the question is, how do you how do you what what transcends my experience of pain? And I suppose my answer to that is that I recognise the the pain of the other as part of me, but also I recognise my own um, participation somehow or other in what caused the pain. And so the question of peace building is. When does that become possible? How do we begin to tell those kind of stories? Where where do we meet in that way? Mm. That's radically threatening for people who have experienced the unbearable and are bearing the unbearable to furthermore have to um, bear the possibility of being generous with imagining the experience of somebody who might be identified with the other side. And again, like we are speaking particularly about populations in Northern Ireland here and, you know, British Irish identities in the North. So I'm, um, I don't think of this as a, a, a lens through which to look at the wide world, but I like, how do you, how do you bear in having an imagination of reconciliation that asks people who have borne the unbearable to be generous? in their imagination of the, the other. You know something you can't, there's no law, it's a choice. We have mm. to choose. Um, it would be very, the, at the end of the day is it, it's, it's keeping the possibility alive of another possibility, a contrasting experience that comes across people. It's certainly not a you must, you have mm. to do a law situation. It's a, the possibility and without that possibility you're locked i have to say i think that's the truth mm -hmm. is without that possibility the really problematic issue for the globe is that in the nuclear age um there is no way to force that context there is no way we are we're living in the in the period now where at a global level and global political level um, and we see it in the Ukraine, I suppose, is that if it tips uh, one way, all of these conversations will become rather academic mm -hmm. <laughs> because it doesn't matter who puts the nuclear bomb off. You know, that, yeah. and so we've reached the technological point at a global level, which is quite similar to Northern Ireland, which is that the rightness of the cause doesn't guarantee that we will 
find our way out of this. And so it is, I, I totally agree with you that this is a, a massive challenge to us as human beings. How do we, and it's not just how do I stop hating you? It's how does, how do we reestablish a relationship in which, first of all, I don't have to fear you and threaten you. And so we, I can let you in a bit. But on the other side, how can we establish a relationship in which what I have done or what has been done in my name can be acknowledged without me feeling I have to defend myself? Uh, but what can actually be acknowledged. I wonder if this would be a good time to ask you if it's possible to give us a couple of tentative steps into some of the thinking about how René Girard has helped you thinking about relationships. I know René Girard, French theorist, he died only a few years ago, nearing 100, um, had been based in the United States for a long time. He's kind of a polymath of, of theology and sociology and literature, extraordinary thinker, controversial thinker too. I wonder if you could introduce us to two concepts, one mimetic thinking and two scapegoating. Um, and you might want to mess that around, Duncan, but uh, certainly those are the two areas that I'm interested in. Yeah, no, no, no. I think that there are two where I think you have, a, which are absolutely critical to Girard's thought. Well, mimetic thinking, part of the language is the academic mimetic language. However, it points to facts that, that Girard at least postulates, one of which is that we are, as human beings, relating to each other at every level well before we think about them. The thought is the kind of raising to the surface of what is happening to us anyway, and that we are mimetic beings. It's almost like magnetism. And mimetic means that at some level we are shaped in our interrelationships. It comes from mimicry too, doesn't it? It's shared. mimetic and mimicry, same word, yeah. It's the same word, yeah. It's mimicry. The, the, the difficulty with, with mimicry, which is a, a derivative word from Mimesis the Greek, is that uh, if you don't watch out, it becomes very conscious, I'm going to copy you. Yeah. But what Girard is actually saying is we are, we are being shaped in our being by our mimetic relationship, by our interrelationship with each other, mm. even way before we start. And that if we want to understand what's going on for, in our own lives, we have to reinterpret that by trying to work out what are the relationships in which that was formed. Yeah. And could you locate that in some kind of story? Maybe there's an anecdote or maybe there's a, something that you've seen that you feel comfortable sharing. I, I'm curious if you could locate mimesis and mimetic behavior in, in something that people go, oh, I, I, I get what you're saying. Well, I mean, I suppose actually the whole basis of, of, of child rearing is that we teach uh, that children learn both positively and negatively, by the way, not just, it's not just, I teach you constantly, but they pick up the, the way the world is. Uh, we, we pick it up from our parents, but also from our siblings and also from the things that happen to us. Um, and so we, 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 and so we are, are given models, I suppose, by society sometimes, whether those are parents, whether those are saints, whether those are teachers, whether those are people who you are identifying with even as as uh, fans and, 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 and we copy their behavior. So fashion moves around like that. Or And so this mimetic behavior is that we are, it's not independent. We, we learn what to, what to desire from our models and we deserve, we learn what, what's important from our models. And we, and, and so it's really important, I suppose, who our models are, but that, that mimetic nature of who we are is at one level, just a, a way of stating facts. Mm. We live in our relationships 
We get, we learn who we are in our relationships and those relationships are happening to us way before we understand it. So we pick up language, not mainly by understanding the words, but by copying, by imitating. Mm. And then we gradually become people who can manipulate that and work that and, and think about that. And then scapegoating, could you open a few doors for us in terms of Girard's idea of scapegoating? Well, scapegoating is, I suppose, Girard's question was, well, so if we copy each other and if what I want, what I wish, which might be, you know, to become very famous, means that you want to become very famous. Um, And then that, because you want it, I want it more. And so potentially where Girard becomes important in conflict is he says that if this is unconstrained in human beings, we end up in conflict, but not just in conflict, conflict which is potentially mortally threatening to the community and to, to our lives together. So his question was, well, how do, how do communities sort that out? How do you sort that out? And his answer was that they direct it um, externally, if you like, but at somebody who they decide is the other, the person who's responsible. And that person or that thing or that group is the person who then uh, we all dislike. And that creates unity for us. That creates unity for those of us who are doing the scapegoating. And the scapegoat then is driven out. But funny enough, and I, I was I was kind of referring to this earlier where I said, you know, sometimes our identities are not being somebody else. The scapegoat's really, really important because he he or she or it or they is the thing which unites all of us um, uh, against it. So scapegoating is a way for us to deal with conflict. It externalizes responsibility on on, on somebody or some other group and then allows us to continue as if we don't have any further responsibility, mm. or at least uh, gives us our peace. And that's why it's really important is that, you know, we have built our peace, not just on being good people, but on actually pushing out the responsibility on some bun- someone or some other group and making them pay. A proper scapegoat, funny enough, is someone who everybody is just so sure they're responsible, we don't even know. So we live with this uh, innocence, um, and, and in the Bible, um, and I know we're going to talk about theology later, but it, it talks about hypocrisy. And the notion of hypocrisy is that we all assume we're the good people and the bad people really are identified as scapegoats. Mm. But in fact, we're all part of the system. We all have our living and our being in some sense or other mm. by having other people having paid a price for our life. Yeah. Coming back to and staying with Gerard for a while, Duncan, like, how has the thinking of Girard influenced some really practical ways in which you analyze your participation in sectarianism or peace or conflict or division or reconciliation in Northern Ireland? Well, I mean, it's for me personally, it's been huge, uh, a whole load of different levels. One of them is, you know, you have to recognize I'm I'm part of this too. And in Girard's thinking, you know, you don't escape mimesis. Mimesis is part of the human conditions. We are mimetic beings. We are relational beings. The question is, uh, so how do we find a different mimetic relationship? What, what, how can we kind of, if you like, be relation, come into relationship with, with a different kind of peace and find our way out of this scapegoating way? Um, so that's one thing, my own participation. The second one is as a tool of analysis to be able to kind of understand or at least throw light on how one group reacts against another, how politicians lead people. Some politicians lead people into heightening the mimetic rivalry by deliberately causing trouble, but also how people respond to that. 
and how small things are can create huge escalation very, very quickly. Um, and then on a third level, in peace building terms, you know, the question of what would bring change is kind of interesting. You know, there are ways of thinking about that politically where you might find enough of a consensus that everybody agrees this is how we go forward. And I suppose it's always worth looking for that. But there's also the question then of of how we break the cycle of just responding to each other in this uh, way of mimetic hostility, how we don't live just as rivals, we, we begin to find ways forward. So for me, it affects both my understanding of myself, most my analysis of the conflict, but also how I think about, well, peace must be about how do we try to find different relationships or try to, to talk to each other or, or meet each other or be with each other in a different way. My name is Padraigo Tuma and this is the Corrie Podcast. With me today is Professor Duncan Morrow, Professor of Politics. And Duncan, I'm really interested, like we're talking about relationships and identity and conflict and scapegoating. And I can hear you veering towards the, the demand, or not the demand, the, the possibility. I can hear you veering and moving towards the possibility of practicing something like reconciliation and forgiveness in public. And I wonder if you could talk about those terms through the lens of theology, because I know that theology shapes your thinking as well as shapes your imagination for society. I suppose my my feeling about theology now is that uh, now, I suppose I've come to the Bible also through Girard rather than to the Bible, if you know what I mean. And, and I, I look at the Bible and I see uh, uh, Jesus figure and also in the Old Testament, the, the whole kind of story of the Jewish people as struggling to find a way out of re relationships that end up in violence and scapegoating. <clears throat> How do we find, what does that even mean? And that is in a very violent world. And so um, the story of, of forgiveness is really the story that even though we are these people, there is a possibility of a relationship at the end. And the, the 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 notion of God not as a big angry power who judges it's totally changed the way I understand the whole nature of theology, but rather as somebody who, rather than take revenge, uh, is prepared to to take all of this scapegoat, be the scapegoat actually, and and still offer forgiveness and still say that beyond all of what we have done to each other, there is a there's an offer of humanity in the space there. And I actually believe that that exhaustion, the, the exhaustion of violence, that beyond violence, there's still the possibility of, of love, that people can still be called back to being human again, um, is unbelievably important because if it's not true, if you, if, you, if you postulate that it's not true, what do we believe? That it's just a struggle to see who wins? Maybe. And I suppose I, I now believe, and this isn't about law at all, is that the, the future of human, of us as human beings, is dependent on our receiving forgiveness on our, because once we receive that, we have the possible, our own forgiveness, we have the possibility of seeing other people as other, as other people caught in the same loops that we were, and the forgiveness becomes a possibility. But I personally believe that, that, um, that that is 
that is an unbelievably new intervention in the world. The possibility that beyond violence, there's something more because, you know, you know, we we have lived through the history of Ireland, but, you know, the history of the world is littered and literally littered with slaughter. And the big question is, and of discrimination and of exclusion and all of the things that happened to people and happened to people. And I suppose the big question is not a sentimental forgiveness or that's all right then, but is there a possibility that even these this can be transformed into something else? Is there a humanity beyond that? And that to me is the importance of 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 this language of to forgive and to be forgiven. That's not to say it's easy or even remotely likely, but it is to say its existence means that I think it changes the nature of the world, gives us a hope that there's a possibility beyond this. Wait, when you teach politics, Duncan, do you, do you bring in questions to do with forgiveness and relationship? I'm curious about that. I hear you synthesizing so many different streams of thought. Is this something you do? And do you get pushback as well? I suppose that's the second part of the question. Oh, I think uh, there's three. There's so many answers to that question, which <laughs> there should be. There should be a yes or a no, but there isn't. Um, okay, so one part is that the the rivalry over religion in our society is so great that the language of forgiveness is really hard now, really hard. The language of anything that's faith based is hard for people because they hear it as power, and that is very complicated. Uh, so you have to be very careful. And, and by being very careful, do you mean to find clever ways to say the old thing or to undo yourself? Because it might be that you're participating in something poor. Three, well, I suppose actually what I should do is offer myself as a scapegoat and just be honest, mm. actually. But I, if I'm very honest about it, I probably am I'm too nervous sometimes to do that. Um, although I think as I get older, I get less nervous because I'm pretty convinced of its, of its truth. And also maybe you don't mind so much. Mm. Um <laughs> The second thing is, um, I think you too, but I do think it's real though, that, that the triggering of people's deep response to, to their own experience is it's very real. So you have to watch yourself. The second thing is if, if you start preaching it as law, you destroy it. So it, you're right in terms of it has to be about story and redemption and about the possibility of transformation. Um, and, and does that exist for people? Is that a reality? And in the end, it's a faith statement. And thirdly, I think for some people, it it is it is hard actually to 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 even to even grasp that it would be possible or, or not even desirable. Or what what are we talking about this for? There's, there's for them, it's still a question of struggle. I'm not there anymore. I actually believe that the that the the intervention of even moments of forgiveness, meaning the people who, who, who previously couldn't have had a relationship find one, mm. creates a few planks on which people can walk across the marsh. Mm. I don't believe it's ever the real world where people live in. I think we all struggle with all of this all the time. Yeah. But I also believe that unless you put those planks under people's feet. So to answer your question, I sometimes lead people to what I think is the next logical step. I sometimes speak it out very directly and I sometimes very occasionally find the courage to simply say, we haven't got a choice. I don't, I haven't got a choice here. Mm. And I think um, that's, that's the hypocrisy I live in. Mm. 
I know that, you know, you've had big involvement on political levels with, you know, leading the Northern Ireland Community Relations Council of consulting with the Scottish government on their policy regarding sectarianism. And, you know, I, I've heard you talk too about amnesty that was offered to people who were serving custodial sentences up to and around the time of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, those are ways within which ideas of forgiveness go from, you know, do I forgive somebody next door to me to the big political realm? How would you speak about the the messiness of trying to do that and maybe the value or the benefit of, of trying whether or not you think it was successful? In terms of trying, I don't think there's a choice. I think you're because certainly our experience in Northern Ireland is that the the biggest obstacle to what you were talking about is a shared future is the past. In other words, what makes it and, and the, the problem is a crisis of faith. In other words, the past makes it impossible to believe in one and actually possibly rationally stupid to believe in one. So you, you have to actually, you know, there has to be something else changed. And I think there was a moment, I mean, I was thinking 35 years ago this year, um, there was a week in Northern Ireland politics, which was quite formative in my life, where it started out with Gibraltar, um, which was SAS shooting IRA operatives about to bomb, but with no weapons and they shot them dead. Then at the, so that was a complex situation, but nevertheless, that's what they did. The state killed them. Then there was the, the funerals of those people which led to an individual, Michael Stone, shooting the people who were at the mourners at the funeral uh, directly in front of TV cameras. And then three days later, um, British Army soldiers, two soldiers, found their way into the cortege of the funeral and they were taken out of the car and lynched by the mob and in front of TV cameras. And all of these things happened in a week. Mm. We saw it all in front of our face. That's 35 years ago. 30 years ago this year, there was a bomb in a shopping centre in Warrington, which was uh, two young children were just killed, totally random children killed because they were out in the shop, one very young and one about 10. Uh, and that shocked people because a cause and the outcome were so, so complex. And then 25 years ago, we had the agreement. <laughs> And so if you start looking in those terms, the agreement was like a miracle of its own moment. It was this kind of moment where something else is possible, something something that's not the story that went before it was possible. And I do believe that that's almost what people are hanging on to, is the possibility that the agreement represents and exists. And so the biggest problem since then has been not the possibility, it's almost been we now have to deal with this and we find it really hard to deal with the stuff in the past. That's where we found it really hard. People have been able to say, OK, so we're not going to do that again. And that doesn't work to a point, at least, although that feels sometimes fragile. But nevertheless, the vast majority and there's been a big change in people's experience of their life since then. But the issue of how we deal with the past has become really complex. And I, it's this balance between there has to be something which authentically owns responsibility for the pain that was caused somewhere along the line. But there also has to be something which says, and the way in which we've tried to make people uh, individually and personally responsible for this has to change as well as we as we begin to own this in a different way. And I think that process has been you know, stopped because there's so many political interests trying to shape the narrative and all of these things. And we found it quite difficult. Um, 
But somewhere along the line, it's an honourable and necessary task. And if there's a lesson from Northern Ireland's peace process and its failures, it is that the hardest thing that people have found is facing up to being to being dishonourable people in the past and still being. And then the second part of it is and that we will have to make them honourable in the future. And if there's a definition of forgiveness, that's what it is. It's how do people who have done dishonorable things become honorable members of society in the future and own the responsibility for what they did? That's really hard. Duncan Morrow, thanks so much for coming on the Cory Miller podcast. You're very welcome. The Cory Miller podcast is created in partnership between Cory Miller and Fan Fan. It's produced by Emily Rowling with mixing, editing and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios and presented by me, Padraig Tuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Coramila's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. Duncan, a very short story question for you. What's something important that you've changed your mind about? Uh, funny enough, Scottish independence, I'm now four. The other thing actually, massive, massive, is the nature of God. Scottish <laughs> independence and the nature of God. <laughs> I was thinking uh, the nature of God, I used to think of it as a big thing and now I think of it as the opposite of that. So... <laughs> Um, I, I'm, I'm going to just go on to the next short story question before I, I fall down the rabbit hole of Scottish independence and the nature of God. Uh, Duncan, are there books or poems or works of art that I that you've turned to over and over again in your life? Oh, yeah, lots. Um, What's some of the important ones? Uh, well, obviously, if you're in Ireland, Seamus Heaney follows you and the Cure of Troy follows you. And in a sense, I only read it. It was a cliche first. And then I read it and I thought, gosh, he really gets it. <laughs> he really gets the problem of it. Friends, Podrick here with a quick message just as we end this first part of season two of the Cory Miller podcast. It's been fantastic to be with you and to hear back from you. We'll be back with another six episodes in the autumn. And in the meantime, you can catch up with all the episodes wherever you get your podcasts and you can access full transcripts and discussion questions to go along with the episodes. If you want to listen with groups of friends or groups of people from your church or community or organization. Um, We look forward to being back with you soon and thanks very much for being with us along the way.